Our sermon today is taken from Galatians 2, verses 1 to 10. Hear now the word of God. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and sat before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slip in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seem influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I, I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised. For he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. This is the word of God. Amen. Guys, good morning. It's very good to be with you all this morning. We're going to continue our sermon series today in the book of Galatians. If you have your Bibles, please turn your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2, 1 to 10. That's the sermon passage that we'll be working through today. We're going to go through it verse by verse. Before we get into it, though, just remember now that uh, Paul is writing this letter to the Galatian church for two specific reasons. The first reason is that he wants to clarify the true gospel. What is that gospel? What is it that he's standing for? What is it that he's supposed to preach as an apostle of Jesus Christ? The second thing that we need to keep in mind is that he's doing this. He's emphasizing the true gospel because he's spotted that there are false teachers in this church. These false teachers are specifically teaching that, of course, we need to believe in Jesus, but belief in Jesus is insufficient. It's not enough for us to merely have faith in Jesus. We also need to add on to what Jesus had done by the works of the law, by the Old Testament's works of the law, specifically circumcision. These false teachers are saying that faith in Christ is not what makes you saved, ultimately. Circumcision and all the other things, all your own good works, must be added on to faith in Jesus Christ for you to be saved. And Paul is saying in no uncertain terms, that is a false gospel. That salvation, as we're going to see in this letter, is nothing about what you do. It's nothing about your own works. It's nothing about your own righteousness. It's nothing about following the Old Testament law. Because by the works of the law, no one can be saved. No one can be justified. Instead, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and through faith in Christ alone. Jesus Christ is the all-sufficient Savior. And in this chapter, we're going to see in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, Paul's going to describe a meeting that took place in Jerusalem 14 years after the first meeting in Jerusalem um, that he laid out at the end of chapter 1. He's going to talk about this private meeting that he had with the apostles 
And, and it's going to be important for him to establish this because he's going to say that his gospel is the same with the other apostles. And he's going to say that in light of this gospel, he's going to work together with the apostles. There's a lot of things to hit here. A lot of things about doctrinal unity, godly leadership, and um, 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 the poor as well. So we're going to go through this verse by verse. Here's how, how I broke it down. and You're going to see this as reflected in your pamphlets. Uh, in chapter 2, verses 1 to 2, we're going to see the occasion of Paul's meeting with the other apostles in Jerusalem. That's 2, verses 1 to 2, the occasion. Verses 3, 4, and 5 is the motivation of Paul. In other words, what were his internal reasons for going to meet them? And then in verses 6 uh, all the way to 10, we're going to see the outcomes or the results of that meeting in Jerusalem. So verses 1 and 2, the occasion. 3, 4, and 5, the motivation. And then 6 to 10, the results or the outcomes of that meeting. With that in view, friends, let's pray again. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us, not only in the Bible, but primarily and through Jesus Christ. We know, Lord, that we are unworthy. We come every Sunday, Lord, grieved and burdened by our sins. We're reminded of all the things we should have done and all the things that we have wrongly done. We thank you as well that you have not left us to ourselves, our own devices. We know, Lord God, that by the works of the law, by our own goodness, we would have never reached you. We would have never been accepted by you, Father. But it is only by your grace that we can now come before you. Pray, Father, therefore, that your spirit will be here, that you would make me clear, that the preached word would affect our lives, that you would not only convince us, but move us towards obedience. Only because of your grace, and not because we're trying to earn that, but because you have done it all. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, guys, chapter 2, verses 1 to 2, and we're going to go verse by verse through this text. Verses 1 and 2 talks about the occasion of this meeting that Paul had with the apostles in Jerusalem. After 14 years, after his first meeting, he went and took up Barnabas and Titus along with him, and he went to Jerusalem. He went up there because of a revelation that was before them in order that he would set the gospel that he's been proclaiming all this time to the other apostles. He wants to make sure that the gospel that he's been proclaiming is not only consistent with the other apostles, but that the apostles' gospel is consistent with his. He is, as we established in chapter 1, an apostle just as they are. There has to be a unity between them. And Paul goes up to them in order that he may know that he was not running in vain. Paul understood that central to his ministry, central to the apostolic ministry, central to the apostles, was a unified message. That there is one God behind them, that there is one gospel behind them, and they need to stand in unison on this gospel in order for them to not run in vain. And that word run in vain is used throughout Paul's letters always in reference to faithfulness. For Paul, the goal of ministry is faithfulness. Faithfulness to the God that he worships and faithfulness to the message that God has revealed to Paul. And it's the same with the apostles. And this is going to be a running theme throughout this text, that, that faithfulness is the measure of success. Faithfulness is the measure of success. And so the occasion for why he went to the other apostles to make sure that they are in unity about this gospel, they're faithful to this gospel message. And that even though Paul is proclaiming this gospel to the Gentiles, a different group of people, as we're going to see as the other apostles, a different group from where Peter is called to, there's still a unified message 
despite different audiences. A unified message defied, uh, uh, in spite of different groups of people that they are preaching to. And now, he went up to them, and notice here in verse 2, he went up to them with Titus and Barnabas in verse 2, but privately, before those who seemed influential. Privately, before those who seemed influential. This may seem counterintuitive to some of us. If he's working so hard to be in, in, in the unified, uh, uh, in a unity with the other apostles, why did he meet privately with them? And why did he emphasize that these apostles seemed influential. He's going to repeat this again in verse 6. Look at verse 6. From those who seem to be influential, namely the apostles, what they were makes no difference to me, for God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seem influential added nothing to me. So why did he mean private? Why did he emphasize that they seemed influential to the Galatian church? Remember that when you're reading a letter, right, you're only listening to one end of the conversation. It's almost as if you go one end of the conversation, you've got to infer what the other people on the other end of the letter are thinking about or dealing with when you're reading the letter. And the reason why I think that Paul is emphasizing that they seem influential is because of this. Paul is trying to establish that his motivations for wanting to be associated with the other apostles is not because they're influential. Why? Because I believe the other false teachers who have crept in, the false brothers, here, the professing Christians who are teaching this false gospel, are wanting to associate with the apostles for the wrong reasons. They wanted to be seen with the apostles. They wanted to be seen with them. Why? Because they thought these were men who were influential. These are powerful men. These are men who are reputable. They have a great reputation, and so the false teachers think, if I keep bringing up their names, if I keep bringing up their credentials, Maybe it will just rub off on us. Maybe people will trust us more. If we associate ourselves with those who are powerful, those who are influential, those who are reputable, we too will gain some kind of authority along with them. And here's what Paul is saying. Brothers, don't make a mistake. I went to the apostles and I associated myself with them for entirely different reasons from the false teachers. Paul is saying, I don't care how influential they have become. I don't care. It adds nothing to me. The only reason I'm associating myself with them, the only reason we're apostles together in one group unified, is because they are faithful to the truth. They are faithful to the truth. And this is why he met with them privately. He didn't need to be seen. He didn't need his ego boosted. He didn't need to be seen to be those who are powerful or influential or reputable. He understood that what matters is faithfulness. And here's what he's saying, I think, guys. Even if the apostles were uninfluential, that has nothing to do with their success or faithfulness. Paul is saying here, there's no correlation between success on the one hand and faithfulness on the other. There's no correlation between the numbers in your church and how faithful you are with preaching the gospel. There's no correlation between the influence that you have and how faithful you are towards your God. There is no correlation between the two. We tend to think that way, don't we? We tend to think that way. We tend to think, oh, if only we have more numbers. Oh, if only we have more influence. If only we have so-and-so. We can know that we're truly being successful. 
and being faithful. We can know that God has blessed us. We correlate things that we could see with God's blessing. And we want people to see that. We want people to see that. We want people to see that we're influential. We want people to see that we're with those who are influential. Uh, Canadian philosopher uh, Charles Taylor, he published this massive tome of a book. It's called A Secular Age. It's, uh, it's published by Harvard University Press, 2007. Huge, massive book. I don't recommend that all of you read it. It's crazy. It's 900 pages long. Um, it's just a massive tome. And, and in it, he just talks about how we got to where we are today. 2007, he wrote it. You know, it's still very relevant. And he just talked about all of human history, and he talked about the conditions that make today what it is. And he says that a marker of the present age is that we live in an age of obsessed authenticity. What does he mean by that? What does he mean by obsessed authenticity? He means fundamentally that in this day and age, we want to believe that we are authentic to ourselves, that we need to embrace who we are, that we have nothing to hide to people, that who we are and how we express ourselves has to be true to how we feel at all times, and therefore we need to show other people how we are always inside and out. And, and he says this very provocative line, nowadays we do things, we go to see people, we go to places, not because we want to do those things, not because we want to be with those people, not because we want to be in those places, but because we want to be seen to be with those people, because we want to be seen in those places, because we want to be seen to be doing these things. We want to be seen and appreciated by others. We want, in other words, to display ourselves to the world more and more. And this is why I think we frequently post our workout routines in social media. This is how and why we frequently, if we meet a celebrity, right, boom, I met somebody really cool and famous today, I'm going to post it on social media, 100 likes. Or more, depending on the celebrity, right? And we have quiet daily devotions, Snapchat or something like that. Oh, my daily devotions today is on this passage, and boom. Now, don't, don't get me wrong here. Social media is not inherently wrong. Don't, don't, I'm not saying you should all take away our Facebook accounts or Twitter accounts or Instagram accounts or whatever. But notice Charles Taylor had a point. It's a point that reverberates all the way back to Paul's point here. He had a meeting with those who other people seemed to be influential, but he didn't care. He didn't need to post about it. And I wonder how many times, how many things we've done that will not be rewarded in heaven because we tweeted about it. And Paul's saying here, influence doesn't matter to me. They could have been completely uninfluential. I would have still met with them because I know they have the truth. They have the truth. It didn't matter to him. It didn't matter to him. i got to move on. Even Titus, so we're, we're going to go now to verse 3, 4, and 5, the motivation of Paul. Why did he bring this up, and why did he go to them? He brought Titus and Barnabas, remember? We saw it in verse 1. In verse 3, he brings up Titus again, and he says this. Even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Why did he bring up Titus at this point? Seems like a throwaway comment. I don't think it is. Titus was brought up by Paul because, remember, these false teachers were saying, for you to be truly saved, for we to be truly saved, we need to go back to the Old Testament law and apply circumcision. All the Jewish customs and laws were not exactly fulfilled by Christ, so we still need to fulfill it ourselves. So, 
Anybody who's not a Jew needs to be circumcised for them to be Christians. Paul brings up Titus. Why? Titus is the perfect example of someone that was converted to Christ, and yet he was not circumcised, he was not a Jew, and what happened? Was he rejected by the apostles because he wasn't circumcised? No. He was accepted. Here's Titus, Paul is saying, a Gentile, a Greek, not circumcised, and we know, and all the other apostles know, he has been saved. Not because of anything he's done. Not because of how he was raised. Not because he was circumcised. But he was saved immediately. In other words, there is no more boundary markers, no more works that separate you between you and God. There's no more ethnic or racial markers that separate you from God anymore. God has come in Jesus Christ. Here's Titus, an outsider. Someone who would have been shunned by the Jewish community. Someone who would have been on the outside and the fringes of communities. But here he is now in the presence of the apostles. And Paul brings up, because he was the perfect example. He was the perfect example of someone saved by grace alone. Nothing could have barred him from community and communion with the fellowship of the saints and fellowship with God. He was that example. And he's bringing this up because, verse 4, a false brother secretly brought in who slipped in to spy our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us back into slavery. They might bring us back into slavery. What's he trying to say, guys? If the false teachers were right, Titus would have still been outside of the fellowship of the church. If these false teachers were right, salvation is still limited by what you do. And if they are right, oh, brothers and sisters, there is no hope for us. Slavery is a theme in Paul, and it's often associated. You're going to see this over and over again in chapter 3, the rest of chapter 2 even, and 4, in this book, and, and also in the book of Romans, with the slavery of the condemning power of the law. When we look at the Old Testament laws, when we look at the Ten Commandments, when we think about Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, I hope we don't think, yeah, that sounds like me. I hope we don't think, yes, this, these laws reflect exactly how I live my life. Yes, these laws reflect exactly how I'm supposed to be. And in fact, I do live like this every day. And I hope you realize over and over again, when you think about the Ten Commandments, I hope you shudder. I hope you shudder at the fact that you break them every day. We all do. I hope when you look at the Ten Commandments, you tremble at the fact that you break them every day. And think about this. What if it depended upon you to obey every single command of God? What if it depended upon your own willingness for you to be accepted by obeying? That's terrifying. That's terrifying. And that's what Paul means by slavery. You keep trying, and you keep trying, but to no avail. You keep pushing, and you keep pushing, but to no end. You keep looking at the law, and you look at yourself, and you thought to yourself, there is nothing I could have done. 
And oh, is that such a great contrast to the freedom that we have in Christ. If this is true, that the gospel is a gospel of grace, it frees you from slavery. What does that mean? It frees you from the slavery of your own sins to the law, the condemnation that comes with it, the guilty conscience that comes with it, everything that the law entails for you and your life. We're freed from that. We're freed from thinking that we could be good enough. We're freed from self-righteousness. We're freed from insecurity and basing everything that we do before God upon ourselves. And we are free to embrace people like Titus because God has first embraced us. That's Paul's point, guys. This is not false teaching. It's not a matter of doctrinal squabbling. False teaching is not a matter of mere academic assent. False teaching is not a matter of propositional or, or, or intellectual agreement. Whatever is taught that is wrong has massive implications to how you live your life. And Paul may seem stern in this letter. He may seem stern in chapter 1. He's going to get even sterner in chapter 5. I hope Taylor will preach that well. And, and we're going to see, guys, that this is because he's fundamentally in love with the Galatian church. He doesn't want to bring them back into slavery. He wants them to feel the fullness of the freedom in Christ. And look at verse 5. He brings us to an even heightened degree. These are the false brothers who are trying to bring people back into the slavery of being good. It's religious not being moral. It's, 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 it's funneling by grace to them, to these false brothers. Again, these are professing Christians. We did not yield in submission even for Now, the word submission here is used in 1 Timothy 3. And, and the word has connotations of the relationship between the children and uh, their parents. What does it mean, therefore, that, that um, Paul is saying we did not yield in submission to them even for once? We did not, even for a moment, let them have the authority of parents to their children. We did not, even for a moment, let them teach in a manner that people should obey them or hear them. Not a moment. Paul, that seems harsh. Calvin in his commentary, I love this. He says that not yielding in submission even for a moment means this. When it comes to matters of the gospel, we must reject any notions of moderation. In other words, when it comes to matters of the gospel, we must reject any notion of moderation. What does he mean by that? Well, what he means is balance, the word balance, has nothing to do with doctrine. You could be balanced in your sensibilities. You could be balanced about your approach. You can be balanced about your attitudes. You can be balanced about how you present things. But there is no such thing with balance when it comes to the truth. Truth is either false or true. There is no gray area. And Paul is saying here, and Calvin is echoing him, you cannot moderate when it comes to the truth. And, and Calvin's basic idea is this. There's going to be a lot of people who say, all right, Calvin, you preach this gospel. Paul, you preach this gospel. But these, all these other people, all these other preachers are preaching this different gospel. Why can't we all just get along and just meet in the middle? Why can't we all just moderate our position and just meet in the middle? You don't, you don't, you don't need to critique the false teachers, Paul or Calvin. But to Paul, that's like saying, 
we could just go back to slavery a little bit. We could go back and reject the freedom just a little bit. We can satisfy the false teachers and not call them out and let you live your life with a conscience forever condemned. And Paul is saying, by no means. Not for a second. Oh, Covenant City Church, my prayer for us is this, that we, 10 years down the road, 20 years down the road, 30 years down the road, where we're all gray or maybe even gone, that this pulpit that represents Covenant City Church will continue to sound forth the same gospel. Not for a single moment will we have compromised. And that we would know, we would not be known for our influence. We would not be known for our reputation. We would not be known for how hip we are or whatever. That doesn't matter. We shall be known for that church that preaches the word of God and will have no compromise, not an inkling of moderation, not an inkling of balance when it comes to the truth. And we so have so many voices in this culture telling us otherwise. Gray, your sermon's too much Bible. We need to be known and told what to do. Tell us 10 things we need to do by the end of this week. And so you come into church with 15 things you know that you didn't do this week, and now here's 25 more things that you need to do. No, week in, week out, preach the gospel. Again, I got I to gotta keep moving. Verse 6, we're, we're going we're gonna, to, okay, so notice verse 5. He's doing this so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, God shows no partiality. We've hit on that a little bit. Now, let's, just, let's, let's move forward here. Paul had a meeting with these, with these apostles, and now he's describing in light of that meeting, in light of the fact that they agreed on this gospel, what are some implications? What happened, in other words? And look at this, verse 7. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to be circumcised worked along through me for mine to the Gentiles. Notice here what's going on. They agreed that they had the same gospel, and look at what happened. They acknowledged that Paul, though he was to preach this gospel, called to a different purpose from Peter, they acknowledged that he had a rightful place along with them. There are two different people groups. There are two different contexts. But they were unified in the same message. And it's fascinating to me that um, in the original language, the word gospel here, uh, unlike in the ESV, it shows up only once. The gospel. And it's actually kind of reflected in the ESV because it just says the gospel and the gospel. The gospel to the Gentiles, the gospel to the circumcised, the gospel to the non-Jew, the gospel to the Jew. What's he saying? A different calling to a different people group doesn't mean a different message to a different people group. We've heard it said, and we've heard it said so many times in this city, that works for you, that doesn't work for me. That may work for Jakartans, but that doesn't work for Chinese people. That may work for Indonesians, but that doesn't work for Western people. What's Paul saying? There is one message that every person needs. We can acknowledge different contexts. We must work hard in contextualizing the people. That same message, 
but it's the same message. Why? Because we all have the same problem. Whether Jews or Gentiles, our problem with God is that we are sinners. And we need the same gospel. We need the same Savior. Why? Look at this. Verse 8. So verse 7 acknowledges the same message to the circumcised and to the uncircumcised. Look at verse 8. For he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. Notice the word for. I love that little word. Every time it shows up, it just gives me so much joy. It's the logical flow is amazing. For, look, why is there one gospel to one people and to different peoples? Why is there one gospel? For, notice this, there is one God. For the same God who works through Peter is the same God who works through Paul. There's one message to all peoples because there's one God who works behind all his messengers. If there are multiple valid gospels, in other words, there are multiple valid gods, and there is none. One God, one gospel. One God, many messengers. One God, one gospel. One God, many peoples who need that gospel. One God, one gospel. Guys, we must not squabble over personality issues. We must not squabble over petty things. We must not squabble about, about different talents and gifts and diversity and all those sort of things. But let us always fight for unity and doctrine. If there's one gospel, there's one God. If there's one God, there's one gospel. And may we never say that different churches can preach a different gospel and that's okay. And may we for ourselves notice that we too tend to listen to the voices of this world and say, if that's not what the people want, let's not give them the gospel. Let's give them what they want. Never. So they notice this. They know that there's one God, one gospel, different ministries, different callings. Look at verse 9. When James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. I think this is really significant. Notice again, Paul emphasizes that they're pillars, they're leaders, they're the ones in authorities, and they were perceived to be pillars. They were perceived to be influential. They were perceived to be the authority, the leaders, right? And, and notice again, remember that verse 2 and 6 already established that for Paul, influence means nothing. Now, let me ask us a question. If you seem to be influential, and if you know yourself to be influential, what do we tend to do? We love the attention. We hog it to ourselves, right? We want to always be in the spotlight. I'm the one in authority. We've heard it said over and over again. We've heard it so many times in Donald Trump, right? And all sorts of other celebrity figures that we see in our, in our media today. We love to be center of attention. Christian Bale says, if Robin shows up, I'm not going to come to work when he shot the Dark Knight. So he, he shot down that idea because he knew that he wanted the Batman to be always the spotlight, the center of attention. Now, notice right now that, that, that verse 8, James, Peter, and John, Cephas is, is Peter. Leaders perceived to be pillars. Paul came to them, said to them, we preach the same gospel. 
what did they do? They recognized and perceived the grace that was given to Paul. They didn't say, oh, here's a new church planner. He's competing with us. Oh, man, here's another player in town. We got to make sure that he doesn't steal our ministry. What did they say? They perceived the grace that was given to Paul. And the moment they did that, they said to ourselves, it doesn't matter if we're pillars, here's another. It doesn't matter that we are chosen leaders, here's another. It doesn't matter we're called here, here's another, he has a different calling, let us bless him. Let us not let our egocentric, selfish sensibilities get in the way of us preaching the same gospel. That's what Paul's saying. That's what, that's what arose out of this meeting. And I want us to understand, guys, that, that godly leadership is acknowledging that you can't do everything. Godly leadership is understanding that you are finite and you've embraced your finitude. Godly leadership is understanding that there are people with different gifts and talents, and if you micromanage, you're not a godly leader. Godly leadership is understanding that people flourish most when you empower them to be so. And you can recognize that you need everyone. You need others. You can't do everything. You can't do this. You can't reach the city alone, Covenant City Church. You can't do it. This is why we long for a healthy relationship across all the churches. We long for a healthy relationship across all the leaders. I want people to know that the best leaders depend on others. And if you can't point out your leader's weaknesses, he's not doing his job well. And that's what they did. They perceived the grace in Paul, and they note, he has been called not in Jerusalem. We need him too. They perceived the grace that was given to Paul. Last verse, guys. Hang with me. We're almost there. We're almost there. They perceived the grace that was in Paul. Look at verse 10. Only, or plus, I would render that, they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. When I first read this verse, when Tezar uh, told me to preach this Sunday, um, the first thing I said is, I, I joked, man, you gave me a hard one. But second thing is, this verse 10 looks like a throwaway passage. What, what's it doing here? Right? He's, he's gone through his, his, uh, his meeting. He's talked about the gospel. He's talked about uh, not going back to slavery, the freedom in Christ, and, and the division of labor between the leaders. Look at verse 10. Suddenly, he brings this up. They asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. And one thing I realized is, this is not a throwaway verse. This is not a parenthetical comment. This is not just a side note. Here's why I think this is the case. Here, here's why I think this is the case. Paul is saying this. All right. Peter may be called to the Gentiles, I mean to the Jews, I may be called to the Gentiles. In other words, I'm not called to the, the Jews, but Peter is. Peter is not called to the Gentiles, but I am. So there's real division of labor. Paul's focus is one people. Peter's focus is another people. In other words, we do have that division of labor, right? But what's he saying? No matter where you are, caring for the poor is not an option. There's no such thing as this church will care for the poor, but our church will not. There's no such thing as we will reach the Jakartans, 
but they will take care of the poor. There's no such thing as making care for the poor an optional side job. Caring for the poor is essential for the ministry of the church. It is constitutive of it in a lot of ways. Uh, I was just listening to a sermon by Tim Keller on a different passage. And Keller uh, notes in, in, in all of Jesus' ministry, all of the Old Testament, and he's citing a lot of Jonathan Edwards here. And it's basically saying this. You could say a lot of things about the Bible. You could say a lot of things about the Gospels, Jesus, the Old Testament, the New Testament. Tons of things you could say about it. But here's one incontrovertible fact. He says this. What's absolutely clear in all of the Bible, God intensely cares for the poor. Justice will come to the needy. The essence of religion is caring for the widows and the orphans. Have we done that? Covenant City Church, will we do that? Will we make ministry of mercy something constitutive of our identity? That we don't say to ourselves, we are given this demographic but care for the poor is optional, that we will dedicate our resources, we'll dedicate a part of our team to the poor. Will we do that? Here's what Paul is saying. We all have different callings, but care for the poor is not an option. We all have different callings, but care for the poor is always a part of the Christian calling. Don't forget that. Last thing, guys. Here's what I want us to see. I noted that verse 6 to 10 are outcomes of this meeting. What did they discuss in the meeting? That these were the outcomes. What did they discuss in the meeting, oh Christian? That the outcomes were selfless leadership. The outcomes were putting aside our egos, our insecurities, so that we could acknowledge the diversity of gifts that God has given us. What is it that they agreed upon such that they now can see themselves as poor and therefore they need to also take care of the poor given to them? Why could they agree on so much suddenly? Why can they now selflessly work together for the good of the city, for the good of the church? They agreed on the gospel. They agreed on the gospel. And if the gospel is true, get this, guys. The only reason why we can be freed to lower ourselves, to not glorify our works, to, 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 to acknowledge the gifts of others is because of this. Jesus Christ emptied his own glory. Jesus Christ emptied himself. The Son of God took on the form of a servant. He didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. And this is why the other apostles could consider themselves and their authority is not a thing to be grasped. Jesus Christ took on the form of a servant and he went down and he condescended because we were poor. And therefore, they could understand that they need to take care of the poor. Jesus Christ came down. And he knows and we know that this is the ground on which we stand. We can let go of our egos. We can let go of our insecurities because our identity is in someone else. Jesus lived the life you should have lived. He died the death you should have died. He saved us, he came down, he put aside everything so that he may die a lonely death on the cross so that we one day would rise again with him. This passage, like any other passage, is about him. He 
is the hero. We are the saved. Amen. Let's pray. Father, you've entrusted to us a gospel. A gospel that not only saves us, but we know can save others. The gospel that is the hope of the world. Let this gospel so move us, so convict us, so convince us, Father, that we would lay aside all our petty squabbles. We would lay aside our own egos, our insecurities, to acknowledge and appreciate the work that you've done in others, that you have shown us that you care for us who are poor and so that we may care for those who are also poor. Let the gospel be the grounds on which we are united. Let the gospel be the grounds on which we stand and the gospel be the grounds from which we work. We obey the law no longer because we're under the law, Father, because we're free to now. You have given us the grace and we now have a new life to live. We thank you, Lord God. Let us be vigilant for this gospel. Let us be vigilant for false teaching. Let us be united in our doctrine so that we may be diverse in our expression. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand to our feet and sing with us. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my soul. This
Many people to reach, many languages to speak in, many ways of doing so, but one God, one gospel. And because this God has come down to earth, he has become poor for us, he has left his authority for us, so to speak, he has given up his comforts for us, we can now do the same. Not to earn his love, but because we serve a God who has died for us. Go now in his mercy. The Lord bless you and keep you. Lord, make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. Lord, lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Now go in his peace.